Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, as I as we have kind of seen multiple different ways, today is a, a day that we take new members, um, a, a, a joining Sunday, um, and uh, and so kind of as a way of introduction, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what the church is. It describes the church as a family. Um, all right, uh, Ephesians, uh, one of Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus, says that we are being built into the household of God, right? And, and so Jesus kind of takes this image and goes a little bit further with it, um, where in the Gospels we hear and, and encounter Jesus during his public ministry. He's going out into the world, and he's teaching, and he's healing. And while he's in the middle of teaching, um, we see that uh, his biological family comes up. Right? Um, it says, while he was still speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers came up to him, and they wanted to talk to Jesus. And he replied, who is my mother and my brother? Uh, essentially denying them kind of special access to them at that point. Right? And he goes on, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Um, Jesus is saying that there is something that actually is stronger than familial bond, right? I would imagine that um, it was perhaps a a, a difficult conversation with his blood family uh, uh, later that day. Um, But, um, uh, you know, what he's, he's teaching us is that that spiritual unity that exists between God's people is far stronger than even the blood ties of, of family that we think of. Right? Because when God created, there was this intended unity that was supposed to exist between all mankind that was familial. Right? It was filled with love, with respect, with service. Right? And, and, and so that there's this beautiful unity that is supposed to exist amongst hum- humanity with, within diversity of individual people. Um, each of us as individuals was supposed to be united together in strength and in love into one family, right? But we see that sin begins to break that apart. And we see that most clearly when we come to a passage like what we're doing when we come uh, uh, to Genesis chapter 4, right? That, that sinful desire to be like God, um, to be the boss, that, that envy that Adam and Eve had for wanting to be like God, um, it rears its heads in all kinds of ways, and now, with Cain, that envy rears its head um, in, in, in envy toward his brother Abel, towards others. And it breaks apart that divinely ordered and ordained love and unity. Right? So that's what we're going to see when we look at a passage like this this morning. So um, if you would turn uh, in your, your pew Bibles, and if you want to, to page uh, 3. Um, otherwise, it'll be up here on the screen as well. We're reading from Genesis 4, um, the next part in our series, uh, verses 8 through 16. It says, 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are grateful um, for your word, and we're grateful for the ways in which um, you are at work um, binding us together, um, even though because of sin we so uh, easily splinter apart. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us uh, eyes to see um, your word and that you would, you would change our hearts, that we might grow uh, in faith in you and, and be bound more and more together in love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so on a Sunday like this where we have people join the church, we're reminded um, that Jesus' church, right, his people, are a work in progress, right, as we talked about with the Petri dish idea. Um, and that's both good news and bad news, right? On one hand, we are declared by, by faith in Jesus um, and what he has done for us. We are, we are declared righteous. But on the other hand, we are not righteous, right? Um, we, we, our lives are beset with sin toward one another, with selfishness and, um, and, and anger even towards God and rebellion, Right? We have a hard time living out what we're called to be. We are, we are these people who are both declared righteous yet living at times in an unrighteous way. Um, we're called to be a holy people, a family, as we said earlier. But time after time, we struggle to even want to be a part of the family, much less to act like members of God's family with the character that he desires for us. Um, you know, I think one of the best illustrations of this is, is in the Bible itself. Um, I don't know how many of y'all have read the book uh, to the church in the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, excuse me, um, but Paul's letters to the Corinthian church are a perfect illustration of what I mean here, right? The church was divided um, into factions over which pastor they preferred, um, some preferring Paul, some preferring Apollos, right? Um, there were members of the church that were engaged in all kinds of different sexual sin, and most of the rest of the church just kind of didn't care. They didn't want to really get involved, um, turning a blind eye toward it. At least one member of the church was openly suing another in civil court. Um, and not only that, but there was this division between the wealthy and the poor within the congregation where the wealthy and the poor kind of they weren't actually taking communion together. Um, they were uh, essentially two different congregations based upon class, right? And, and 
This is all happening in one church family, and I'm not even mentioning all of the problems that exist in that church. Right? So Paul writes to them not to condemn them, but, but to rebuke them and to instruct them and to encourage them. And part of me is encouraged when I read their story, right? Uh, because a lot of times you'll hear different people say, well, you know what, we just need to get back to the way that the early church was doing it. Right? Um, and you're like, okay, well, that's great, but maybe not like Corinth. Um, right? So the grass is not always greener back then, and that's sort of the point. But I'm also reminded that we as Christians have apparently always had a hard time living into the reality that we're intended to be as a loving family. Um, right? God is saving a people that are intended to be this new humanity, the new family, so to speak, that he placed on the grounds of Eden, living the way that we were created to live. And we struggle to do so because our hearts, apart from God, put ourselves first. And that selfish heart leads toward you know, quarrels, to gossip and slander, um, to anger and schisms, to abuse, or what is just as bad, the cover-up of abuse. And so this morning, I want to take a look at the divisive nature um, uh, that we as in the church have at times through the lens of the murder of Cain for his brother. And I want to talk about what it's supposed to look like to live into that Christian identity of family. And so how do we do it? when we are also blood guilty, like Cain is? And secondly, how does the blood of Christ bring about this new reality? Um, So how do we do this when we are blood guilty? And second, how does the blood of Christ help us to live into that new reality? Um, Our first scripture reading this morning that Josie read for us came from Matthew 5. Um, And Jesus is teaching, (coughs) excuse me, uh, from uh, essentially he's taking the Ten Commandments um, and, uh, and making them a, a little bit more applicable to those of us who might think, well, I've never broken any of them, um, right? And so in particular, he's taking the Sixth Commandment and he's expounding upon it when he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and so on. Right? And so if you wanted to read Genesis 4 and feel like you're better than Cain, um, that you would never be someone to murder your brother, then like out comes Jesus and slaps us in the face. And it's like, yeah, um, but you're as guilty of murder of your brother if you've ever struggled with these things in your heart. Right? Because who among us has never been guilty of hatred? Who among us has never been guilty of getting angry at in an unrighteous way or insulting another? Because of course we're all guilty. Right? For maybe things like spreading a rumor about a coworker or a classmate hoping that that would take them down a notch. Or hating the person who scores higher than you on the test or uh, it gets a higher class ranking than you, gets promoted over you. Right, or being envious of others as we all are whenever we look at social media, um, or really any form of media for that matter. Our uh, kind of doctrinal standards as a Presbyterian church comes from a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and the Westminster Confession of Faith 
makes uh, it almost impossible to try, uh, whenever we try and weasel out from underneath the spotlight of Jesus's um, uh, spotlight on the sixth commandment, the Westminster Confession of Faith just seems to follow us even more. Um, it explains that while we, um, that we all fail to love our neighbor and to promote their life, and it says so in these ways. I'm going to read it slowly because it's a lot, and I'm not quoting all of it. The duties required in the sixth commandment, right, the commandment of thou shalt not murder, um, they are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. It can do by just defense thereof against violence or patient bearing of the hand of God. If we fail to live by quietness of mind, if we fail to live by cheerfulness of spirit, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. We should be ready to be reconciled at all times by comforting and succoring the distressed, protecting and defending the innocent. That's just one part. It goes on. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice or necessary defense. Right? The neglecting or withdrawing of lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, excessive passions and distracting cares. Right? The things that distract us from actually promoting the life of another. Provoking words, oppression, quarreling, whatsoever else tends to the, to the destruction of the life of any. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's a lot. It is a, it is a lot. Uh, and I don't say that to just beat us up over the head. Some of us might be thinking, I don't really care what Westminster has to say about this sort of stuff. Others of us might just be sitting here thinking, holy cow, I came in here and my week has been really hard and Taylor just punched me in the face. Um, the point is, as the Westminster writers describe the different ways that we violate the commandment, that we shall not murder, they help us to see the ways that we hate, or they help us to see the ways that our lack of love so easily takes root in our hearts. Right? And Jesus taught that our hatred makes us liable to judgment, as it said in Matthew 5. Or in light of our passage, the sin of hatred in our heart makes us as guilty of spilling the blood of our brothers as the physical act of violence. So, when we come to the passage, I wanted us to come with humility, recognizing that though Cain slayed his brother here, there is no difference in our hearts. Right? Some biblical passages are hard to understand, without commentary or a sermon. Um, this really isn't one of those passages, right? Uh, that the envy that Cain feels over, over God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice instead of his own leads to anger, and it leads to him shutting out the Lord, and God pursues him again and again. And, and Cain is like, I don't really, he actually never talks to the Lord at any point. 
um, in, this, uh, in this whole endeavor until finally the Lord confronts him. Instead, Cain is out in the field with Abel. His envy for his brother grows into hatred and Cain murders his own brother. And again, right, Cain isn't feeling convicted here. He doesn't go to the Lord and said, like, God, what did I do? You know, um, no. The, he tries to hide from God, but God comes to Cain and asks him, what have you done? Not because he isn't sure, but because he wants to give Cain the opportunity to turn toward him. Right? The question is obviously intended to be rhetorical. God knows exactly what has happened. He's just trying to get Cain to admit it. Because the first path toward healing is repentance. And the very first act of repentance is telling the truth, right? It's confession. And that's what God wants from Cain here. So though Cain is not confessing to God, right, the injustice of his brother's spilt blood, Abel's blood testifies on his behalf. It cries out, essentially yelling like, this is not right. This is not the way that it is supposed to be. But Cain's heart is hard. It's indifferent. And so when God confronts Cain here, Cain reacts defensively by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Right? Am I responsible for him? Right? This almost sounds like he's saying, like, man, if he didn't want to get murdered, he shouldn't have come out with me in the field to begin with. Right? It's actually kind of his fault. Because I'm not really responsible for him. Or maybe he's challenging God here. Like, if you thought Abel was so special, then why didn't you protect Abel when I was so angry at him? So actually, Abel's murder is kind of your fault, God. Right? But this is how we act toward one another at times and how we act toward the Lord when these things happen and we're confronted. Even if we haven't physically murdered someone, this is what it looks like to murder someone in our heart, to treat them as if they're dead to you. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? To treat them as if they have absolutely nothing to do with you. Right? You don't really care what has, happens to them. Right? What, what responsibility do I have for the addict on the street. They're not my responsibility. I'm, I'm not their keeper. Right? What responsibility is that depressed kid in my dorm who isn't my roommate um, or my classmate? He's not my responsibility. But it can even be more subtle than those examples. Right? How much, how much do, we, do we think about um, our next door neighbor? How much do we think about our classmate, our coworker? Do we know anything about their lives? Do we care about them? Or are they essentially dead to us? How frequently have we been driving and yelled, get out of my way, as if that person isn't entitled to the road themselves? Right? Maybe there's no one that you actively hate, but there are people in, the, in your life who frustrate you for no reason in particular, right? Um, and it's actually maybe even nothing that they've done to you. Things like a coworker who um, who always has good things going for them, right? Uh, they just they they seem to struggle at nothing, right? And so you just it drives you crazy. Or maybe it's another another mom who has Pinterest type food that they give to their kid at lunch with amazing notes, and they're always in carpool line first, and somehow their kids always look amazing, right? And um, and she's nice to you on top of it. Right? Uh, there are so many encounters that we have every day where we just have that slight twinge within our heart where we think, man, why are they like that? And, and 
we don't really want anything to do with them in those moments. Maybe we even hear something bad has happened in their life, and we're not really happy about it exactly, but we're not really all that upset about it either. When we write another person off for any reason, we're abdicating responsibility for them. And when we think of them uncharitably, as the Westminster Confession phrases it, then we're actually abdicating any sort of love for that person. And when we do so, we may not realize it, but we are actually as affected by that lack of love in our heart. They may be on the receiving end of our hate, our envy, and our indifference, but as one theologian put it, the, the axe that chops down the tree is also still dulled by the tree itself. So even if you are out there hating other people actively, it is still doing something to your heart and harming you just the same. Here's the point. God's human family that was created in harmony and in unity has has come apart at the seams here with Cain and Abel. Though God promised that Adam and Eve... um, this is a couple weeks in a row, guys. I'm, I'm feeling a little uh, Big Brother watch in action. Um, the family of God has come apart at the seams. Though God has promised that Adam and Eve's disobedience of eating of the tree um, would lead toward death, the very first physical death doesn't happen until here. Right? The first death is of someone who didn't deserve that death. Right? who didn't earn death because of their sin. The first death is not punishment for sin. It is the opposite. Abel's death is unjust. It's wrong. It's a violation of God's character and who he is. And so Abel's murder deserves judgment and condemnation. But as we see in our passage today, God is gracious and far more gracious than Cain and than Cain deserves. Because God not only doesn't condemn Cain to death here, he allows Cain to live and and sentences him to exile instead, to wander the earth. And God tells Cain that the ground which he profaned with his own brother's blood is going to kind of work against him a little bit longer, right? And he's going to struggle, but he will live. And not only that, he's going to give him a little bit of protection that he doesn't deserve as well. But God's kindness and God's patience or delay of justice can only last for so long as a righteous and holy god the only thing that can rectify the blood guilt that we all have is death itself because murder demands blood right and so the forgiveness that we have comes through christ's blood and that's our second point um, most of you know that, that several of the people of the church, we do this thing called proofreading, and we read a book uh, by a, a Christian pastor um, named Russell Moore. Uh, the book was called Losing Our Religion. And the book is about the way that the church has become more and more kind of corrupted by the politics of our country um, rather than being formed by the identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. Um, in word and in spirit. And though the book is not perfect by any means, we had a really good discussion about it a couple weeks ago. But the author makes a really interesting point. He talks about how the church in recent years has stopped focusing as much on the blood of Christ. Um, 
partly because he thinks like you know maybe the church was um, a little bit grossed out or uh, the idea that it offends some of our sensibilities and partly because it seems and feels a little bit too challenging um, to, to seekers and those who are trying to figure out what the Christian faith is. So you don't really want to talk that much about blood. It feels uh, like it's a little insensitive or something along those lines. But part of the reason that Moore suggests and th- that I actually think he's spot on with this one, uh, that churches have recently de-emphasized Christ's blood in their liturgy and in their music is because we've become less focused on our need, um, on our own sin. Right? It isn't necessary to talk about the sacrificial death of Jesus if we don't need a Savior, right? Um, but as everything we have been talking about up until now has made, been painfully clear, we are not a unified, loving people living out the way that God desires for us to do. We, all of us, deserve the same punishment that Cain deserves. We deserve death for our own sins that we've committed against others as we've hated them in our heart, for our own failure to love others as we were told to love. Yet, as with Cain, God is far more gracious to us than is comprehensible. Through our own actions, or though our own actions have, have left uh, blood crying out from the ground, kind of in the wake of our own, uh, uh, our own actions as we've moved through the world, right? those who've been, been murdered by us in our hearts, The blood of Christ, or sorry, their blood, though their blood is crying out from the ground, the sacrificial blood of Jesus testifies on our behalf. Though we deserve retribution for our own murderous hearts, though there is nothing but condemnation that we deserve on our own, God the Son was sacrificed in our place. Jesus gave his own blood for us. As we sang earlier, every sin on him was laid. And his blood brought us back from the price that was on our heads for our sinful actions and inactions towards our neighbor, towards our brothers. I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that I know all the hearts of those who are present here. Some of you may have heard this good, good news before, and you may believe it. And you just need to be reminded of it. Right? That Jesus' blood covers you and you are forgiven. And so be reminded of it. Some of you may have also heard this before, but perhaps you're hearing it differently now. And I pray that you do hear it differently now. Right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His blood covers you and all of our blood guiltiness. Or maybe you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is and why his blood matters to you. Um, And so if that's the case, we're just glad you're here. As you've heard me say, the good news of the Bible is not just for Christians who are living the good life. Because how many of us are out there just like living it up and living exactly the way that we were called to live? We're not living sinlessly or flawlessly. So the gospel is not just for non-Christians who need to know, but for all of us who need to know what Jesus has done for us and what he is doing in and through us. This is good news for all of us because the Lord is good and gracious to all and he desires that all would turn toward him in faith and in love. And so 
you might be thinking practically, um, like, okay, this, I, I'm grateful, right? But how does that actually help us love one another differently? Well, the answer is that Jesus' blood, that same, uh, that Jesus' blood that covers you is the same one who sent the Holy Spirit to work within you. Right? He is the one who is making us into that new community. He is the one that is making us into a new, a, a new humanity, a new family. A family that puts off strife and quarreling and puts on peacemaking and kindness by faith in Christ. A family who puts off anger and hatred and puts on love. A family whose envious hearts are being softened and reshaped into hearts that are, um, that are instead characterized by, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness. We're becoming this family because he is the one who applies all that Christ has done and all that Christ is to us. And he's given us each other that we might encourage one another to become more like the sons and daughters that we have been declared to be as we live out in this Petri dish together, but by the Holy Spirit that is actually doing something within us and to us. The, the very first song that we sang that I know for many of y'all, if it's new, it's like crazy long, and I get that, but it's beautiful. Um, the song is, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. And one of the verses, I think it was the fifth verse, says, soul, the, the, the songwriter is addressing their own soul. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear because think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's love is yours and think that Jesus died to win you because you are now a child of heaven and you do not any longer need to grieve what has happened before. You are a child of heaven if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are a member of his family by placing your faith in him. By his blood, we are saved. By his blood, we are being built into a new humanity because Jesus died to win you. And he died to win me as well. And so may we live into that reality together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus Christ, for what he has done um, to cover the ways that we fail to love others, um, for the, the hatred that exists within our hearts. But Father, I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would change our hearts, that we might be a people who love, who love as we have been loved. And I pray that you would make that true here at Advent as well as in your whole church throughout the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.